All right. Well, hey, folks, welcome to This Week in the News. This is Jeff Salzman. I am here being sponsored by the Institute for Cultural Evolution, and I encourage you to check them out. I'm on the board. And their publication, The Post-Progressive Post, where this will be posted uh, later today. So today in This Week in the News, I wanted to look at what is arguably the biggest story of the moment, and that is the situation on the Ukraine border. And it is Friday morning at 1110 Mountain Time, and it is literally the fog of war, pre-war, pseudo-war, hybrid war. We, it's, it's, here's the headlines from the current New York Times website. Russia raises Ukraine tensions with drills and more troops. U.S. says 190,000 Russian troops now in and around Ukraine. Analysis, colon, is Putin a crafty strategist or an aggrieved and reckless leader? Next headline, the U.S. warned that artillery exchanges in eastern Ukraine may presage, presage a Russian invasion. An internet shutdown in Kazakhstan offers a preview of what may unfold in Ukraine. So, wow, it's... Um, big and frightening. And, um, you know, I certainly don't know where it's going to go, but there are some observations I'd make to try to forward the conversation a little bit into the integral territory, because that's not where most of the commentary it is. And of course, everybody's been opining on this for weeks. And um, so I wanted to look at one of the leading opiners, a platinum level opiner, and that, you, that is Ival Harari. And he is, uh, you know, a, as big as it gets. They did a thing on him for 60 minutes and his husband, and he's so cute and he lives in Israel and he gets these big bucks for traveling around to Davos and the world forums and the big corporations. And he is actually well thought of in the integral community uh, because he wrote a book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Uh, and he sold 30 million books. I, I, this and he has a couple others out. The Guardian called him a guru for our times. And so here he is in The Economist, of course, another platinum level media platform. And he's writing on the Ukraine. This is a couple days ago. And it's titled, Is War Inevitable? Uh, on the website, it's titled, The Economist website, it's titled, Ival Noah Harari argues that what's at, stake, what's at stake in Ukraine is the direction of human history. Humanity's greatest political achievement has been the decline of war this is now in jeopardy. So that's a headline and subhead. And I would just pause right there because that gets my integral juices flowing. The direction of human history, that's, you know, that's right up our alley. And, um, you know, so that's what he does. Um, and, you know, he, he also talks about the smaller time frames of, you know, East-West relations and how it might change. And, upending post-war alliances and um, how 
even the threat, even what we have so far is a, um, you know, a threat to the world in the sense that it will just motivate legislatures to, to uh, uh, put more money into military and less into social and climate change. And he makes very good points. And I'm not going to read his whole essay, but it's worth reading for sure. Uh, my I, and I don't even agree, I don't even disagree with his retelling of history. In fact, I find it kind of refreshing and, and good. And I'll get into some of that. But I just think he stops at materialism, like most everybody does in the commentariat, at least the mainstream commentariat. Um, and, you know, some psychology, but it lacks what I think integral brings to the party and this integral vision and this acknowledgement and perception, this palpable feeling of the spirit of evolution, the, the procreant urge of the world, Walt Whitman said. And, you know, this idea that humanity is growing, that the cosmos, that, you know, we've gone from a big mess of hydrogen to us, you know, what's going on here? And at minimum, we can at least acknowledge a structure of growth. If, you know, it doesn't have to be supernatural. I think it, supernatural is a perfectly good word for it uh, until maybe, a, you know, it becomes natural because we understand it more. But, um, you know, that the cosmos is coming from somewhere, humanity's coming from somewhere, that we're going somewhere, and that that journey is deeply meaningful is the piece that Harari doesn't get to. And uh, so I always find his stuff to be, you know, that kind of cruelly interesting, but, uh, you know, ultimately a thin gruel when you consider what Integral brings to the party for those of us who, you know, are into that. So anyway, so here he is, the, the, the direction of human history. And he starts his essay by writing, at the heart of the Ukraine crisis lies a fundamental question about the nature of history and the nature of humanity. And that is, is change possible? I mean, really? But he goes, he goes on, can humans change the way they behave or does history repeat itself endlessly? with humans forever condemned to reenact past tragedies without changing anything except the decor. Ay, 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 is that really the question? But he goes on and, you know, he parses it. He says, one school of thought denies the possibility of change. Okay, it argues that the world's a jungle, that the strong prey upon the weak, and that the only thing preventing one country from wolfing down another is military force. That's how it's always been and how it always will be. And fair enough, there is, from an integral perspective, that strata of development, which is the warrior, maybe early traditional um, strata that sees that conquest is the way forward. And that's never changed in, uh, you know, until about 300 years ago, uh, as modern thought came in, uh, and, and maybe even, you know, 200 years ago, when it started being enacted in governments, that really, this would be true. This would be the school of thought that would win the day. Uh, but then there's another school of thought, he says, another school of thought argues that the so-called law of the jungle isn't a natural law at all. Humans made it and humans can change it. 
And so this gets into this idea that we're in charge of our own destiny and we're released from the you know, triumphalist narratives of history. And this is basically a modern sensibility. Um, you know, that this is the two schools I think, think is pretty simplistic. And the idea that um, it's not a natural law at all, um, that um, the, he says that the law of the jungle isn't a natural law at all. Humans made it and humans can change it. I would argue that it is a natural law, not the law of the jungle, but there is a natural law. And that natural law is growth. And, um, you know, one of the things that we can sort of compare and, and sort of be informed by in integral is this idea that consciousness evolution and cultural evolution. So consciousness evolution being each of our individual growth from you know, infancy to where we are. And, uh, and then the collective version of that is the cultural growth that if we look at growth and, and we wanna add this you know, dimension in this, this gravity of the procreant urge of the world, do two-year-olds choose to be three-year-olds? Do they make choices that lead them to becoming three years old? Do 10-year-olds change themselves? Because that's the one thing humans can do is change. Do they change themselves into being 11 or 12-year-olds? Can a 12-year-old go back to being a three-year-old? The answer is actually yes, <laughs> on occasion. I'm actually realizing that 60-year-olds can go back to being three-year-olds. But um, the center of gravity, the gravity of our stage of development pulls us back. And this is one of the key insights of Ken Wilber's aqua theory that I think is amazing. It's one of the five pillars. And that is this, the difference between stages and states. States are, you know, we go from mad to glad and all in between throughout the day and our state can change. And actually uh, from an integral perspective, we want our state to change. We just want it to change with less, less friction and less preference in a way. So, you know, there's a lot of, we can learn about stage growth and even, you know, developing stages of um, equanimity and all that good stuff. So that happens at every stage. So states and stages. Stages are more, um, they're permanent acquisitions. When you're three, year old, three, three years old, you have gained things that you can't, you know, barring some catastrophe, lose. You know, you can't unlearn how to read once you're six or seven. I mean, of course, if you get into dementia and so forth, but the stages of normal, healthy human growth are sequential and reliable. And that's true of cultures as well. You know, there, there are cultural regressions to be sure. And, and cultures have states, like after 9-11, we had a paranoid state reaction in, in, in the US and, you know, made some bad decisions. Um, but um, what often looks like cultural regression is actually the integration of earlier stages. So I know a lot of my liberal friends and integral friends feel like the rise of the right, if you will, is a regression of culture. 
And it's hard to argue with Donald Trump being a regression of culture. I'll give you that one. <laughs> but, you know, Donald Trump is actually in that red stage where power is all. I mean, that's where his heart is, you know, that warrior stage. Uh, but, um, but a lot of times uh, from an integral or evolutionary point of view, what looks like regression is, is actually bringing back online the people you thought you could leave behind. Uh, as you know, part of the intellectual elite of the world, and you can't, and that's being seen. That's a lot of what's happening in our, the culture wars, and even in these um, sort of what are they? Hot wars, hybrid wars um, that we see going on. So anyway, I'll get back to Evol Harari here, and here here he makes all kinds of great points, and I'll, I'm going to read a bit of it. He says, evidence of such change is all around. Over the past few generations, nuclear weapons have turned war between superpowers into a mad act of collective suicide, forcing the most powerful nations on earth to find less violent ways to resolve conflict. Right on, it's true. It's a bizarre paradox, but true. Whereas great power wars such as the Second Punic War or the Second World War have been salient features for much of history the past seven decades, no direct war be between superpowers. Um, during the same period, the global economy, and we're talking the last seven decades, has been transformed from one based on materials to one based on knowledge. That's an important point. Where once the main source of wealth were material assets such as gold mines, wheat fields, and oil wells, today the main source of wealth is knowledge. And whereas you can seize oil fields by force, you cannot acquire knowledge that way. The profitability of conquest has declined as a result. Okay, so that raises another very important integral point. And this is again from Ken Wilber's Aqua Theory that there are three main meta states of being. One is those the gross realm, the realm of the physical. And that's the realm of that he's talking about where you go take the oil. <laughs> yeah, it's a, another Trumpism anyway. Can't get him out of my head. Um, so what was I saying here? That, so there's the gross realm, the realm of material. There's the realm of thought, or as he says, the realm of knowledge. And, um, and that's the subtle realm that Ken Wilber would call it. And then there's the causal realm, which is the realm of even finer consciousness and moving into spiritual and uh, the whole thing is in formlessness. And there's, you know, a lot of you know what I'm talking about. But what he is pointing to, although he doesn't say it, is that the theater of war has changed from the gross realm to the subtle realm. So we're no longer fighting as much. Now we'll see how this one goes here in the Ukraine. Oh my God, and I pray to God. Um, but you know, the subtle realm warfare is where you do a lot of uh, theater. You try to psych out your opponent. That's of course always been a part of warfare but now we can do it in cyber and we can do it with media and we can do it with dis disinformation and threats and moving troops. And then, you know, the, the whole thing of war happening, the culture war is a war of ideas and ideologies and actually 
from an integral perspective, worldviews, um, sequential worldviews. And, um, you know, so we see it on Twitter wars and all of, you know, so he, he has a good analysis here and he continues it. And he says, finally, a tectonic shift has taken place in global culture. Many elites in history, Hun chieftains, Viking Jarls and Roman patricians, for examples, viewed war positively. That's right. Everybody uh, at Red and earlier they basically viewed war positively when they thought it was in their interest. And he goes on, he says, rulers from Sargon the Great to Benito Mussolini sought to immortalize themselves by conquest. And artists such as Homer and Shakespeare happily obliged such fantasies. Other elites such as the Christian church viewed war as evil but inevitable. And that itself is progress, actually, to see that the, the bigger war is this titanic war between good and evil. And, um, but, you know, so we live in this fallen world and that's that move from red into um, amber traditionalism. And then he goes on, he says, the past few generation, however, the first time in history that the world became dominated by elites is who see war as both evil and avoidable. Yes, very good. He goes on, even the likes of George W. Bush and Donald Trump are very different types of politicians than Attila the Hun or Alaric the Goth. You think? <laughs> uh, rather faint praise, but uh, yes, I think that's a correct statement. Um, he goes on, he says, in the realm of art and thought, these days, most of the leading lights from Pablo Picasso to Stanley Kubrick are better known for depicting the senseless horrors of combat than for glorifying its architects. And again, if I can slip in another plug for what may certainly in my top five books of all time, All Quiet on the Western Front is a very pivotal book uh, that critiques this triumphalist view of Germany in World War I and then the reality of it and made a lot of, it was a big cultural shift, a big, um, um, a, a powerful move in evolution. Of course, it takes 30 years for these things to catch on and the Nazis came in in the meantime. Anyway, I digress. Okay, he says, governments stop seeing wars of aggression as acceptable tools to advance their interest. Most nations stopped fantasizing about conquering and annexing their neighbors. Very good. And then he goes on, he says, the decline of war has been a psychological as well as a statistical phenomenon. For most of history, peace meant only, quote, the temporary absence of war. That's so true. In recent years, peace has come to mean the implausibility of war. For many countries, being invaded and conquered by neighbors has become almost inconceivable. He says, I live in the Middle East, so I know perfectly well there are exceptions, but recognizing the trends is at least as important as being able to point out the exceptions. Oh man, that's talking my language. And, you know, if we're talking about the trends of human history, I think we can go beyond this essay anyway. Um, let's see, and he talks about how um, 
governments around the world have felt safe enough to spend an average of only 6.5% of their budgets on armed forces, uh, spending more in education, healthcare, welfare. Uh, and then he says, to take that for granted uh, is a mistake because it is an astonishing novelty in human history. For thousands of years, military expenditure was by far the biggest item on the budget, budget of every prince, khan, sultan, and, and emperor. They hardly spent a penny on education or medical help for the masses. So I'm loving Yuval at this point. And then he goes and ruins, ruins everything. And he writes, <laughs> he says, the decline of war didn't result from a divine miracle or from a change in the laws of nature. Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it did. The miracle of evolution, of emergence, of growth, of the development of morality. And yes, the laws of nature, the laws of human nature have indeed changed. At every stage, there's a new set of laws. And again, stages are reliable. They're, they're permanent acquisitions, barring the asteroid hitting, you know. And, you know, of course, the pendulum can swing, but the clock is relentlessly moving forward. I think. So here, here's his explanation. And um, he says, it resulted from humans making better choices. Okay, I guess that's true. It is arguably the greatest political and moral achievement of modern civilization. Okay. Unfortunately, the fact that it stems from human choice also means it's reversible. And again, you can't choose to not be able to read. You can't choose to go back in time. Um, uh, to be younger, uh, to actually, it's, it's a thin gruel <laughs> again. So let's see what else he says here. We're at the, pretty much at the end. Um, okay, he says technology, economics, and culture continues to change. Well, it could, growth, I think, is uh, better, but okay. Um, to enjoy peace, we need almost everyone to make good choices. It reminds me of Jamie Lee Curtis uh, uh, when she uh, in Freaky Friday when she's letting Lindsay Lohan, the high school girl, off at school, and Lindsay can't wait to get out of the car, and and Jamie Lee Curtis yells out, "Make good choices." Really funny. There's a bunch of gifts of that. Maybe I'll be able to edit one in here. Anyway, uh, we need to make good choices. By contrast, poor choice by just one side can lead to war. Well, that's that's true. And, you know, again, God bless us all, and particularly the Ukraine and the Russians, for that matter. Okay, that's why Russian threat to invade Ukraine should concern every person on Earth. Great. If it again becomes normative for power, powerful countries to wolf down their weaker neighbors, it would affect the way people all over the world feel and behave. Yes, I don't think it's going to become normative, but even it happening once, we'll do that uh, and we'll increase the chances, no doubt. The first and most obvious result of a return to the law of the jungle would be a sharp increase in military spending at the expense of everything else. The money that should go to teachers, nurses, and social workers would go to tanks, missiles, and cyber weapons. Right, that's true. A return to the jungle would also undermine global cooperation on climate change, this uh, AI, genetic engineering. Okay, okay, and then here's the here's this statement um, that um, 
he ends with. He says, it's both climate change and an AI arms race accelerate. The threat of armed conflict will only increase further, closing a vicious circle that may well doom our species. And again, this is what happens when you don't have, um, you know, the element of evolution and, 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 and development. You know, it's, you have this endless circle. The threat will only increase further, the threat of armed conflict. Um, okay, based on what? Uh, closing a vicious circle that well, may well doom our species. Again, this is where the spiral, I think, is such a great image because, yes, it shows the circles we go in, but it also shows the time. There's that fourth dimension that, um, or third dimension or whatever it is, that shows that movement and growth and the stability in that. So, okay. Okay, change possible inevitability, let's see, the only constant in human history is change, I would say also growth. Um, and then he talks about how the Ukrainians have um, had all these years, generations of tyranny and violence. The two centuries of uh, czarist autocracy and of course the Red Army and um, so anyway, uh, and that they chose differently despite history and um, they, uh, we have a new piece, but it's fragile, may not last long because every old thing was once new and it all comes down to human choices. That is the end. So, okay. Um, you know, that is the state of, of uh, intel the intelligentsia uh, discourse uh, I see that David Brooks did very much the same thing this morning in the New York Times. It's a huge piece, uh, two-thirds of the op-ed page. You can see it there. The Century of the Strong Man Begins. And um, I'll read just a few things from this as well, because I, I think he makes the same mistake. Or I don't know if it's a mistake. It's just that it's, it, it just falls short of including an important aspect of reality which is, you know, growth, even purpose, teleology, you know, only just because it's always been there. I mean, I, 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 you know, silly me. But anyway, here's David Brooks. He says, the century of the strong man begins. In the early 1990s, I was a roving correspondent for the Wall Street Journal based in Europe. Some years it felt as if all I did was cover good news. The end of the Soviet Union, Ukrainians voting for independence, German reunification, the spread of democracy across Europe, Mandela coming out of prison and the end of apartheid, the Oslo peace process that seemed to bring stability to the Middle East. Yeah, those are great years, 1989, um, all that good stuff. I obsess about those years now, obsess about them because the good times did not last. <sighs> okay. History is reverting towards barbarism. Ay, ay, ay. We have an authoritarian strongman in Russia threatening to invade his neighbors, an increasingly authoritarian China waging genocide on its people and threatening Taiwan, cyber attacks undermining the world order, democracy is a retreat worldwide, thuggish populace across the West undermining nations from within. <sighs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, 
you know, one of the things he, he uses as his, his um, evidence for that is, hang on here. Um, he talks about the uh, embrace of Putin's embrace of the Catholic, Russian Orthodox Church railing against postmodern godlessness, which Putin does, because his people do, they, they, they resonate with that, you know, the majority. Um, they, you know, after uh, atheist Soviet policies, it probably feels really good to have somebody who's embracing the Russian Orthodox Church. And of course, he does this uh, unforgivable sin of barbarity. He scorns homosexuality and transgenderism. Um, and so does China, because um, I don't know if you saw the latest, but in their running of the reruns of Friends, they deleted the part where Ross's ex-wife is gay. Those horrible Chinese censors um, went basically went back to you know where Barack Obama was in two thousand eight against gay marriage. Um, so you know. Uh, you, one of the things, if we, we talk about the century of the strong man begins, let's uh, not, at least acknowledge, and I think Harari does more than Brooks does here, uh, acknowledge the evolution of the strong man. You know, there's a difference between Putin and Stalin. It's pretty obvious, and Hitler. There's a difference between Xi in China and Mao. I mean, big difference evolutionarily. Are they democracies? Are they showing us that, that maybe modernity can be installed without democracy? Yes. Do they have um, um, stages of uh, online that are as barbarous as barbarity has ever been? Well, probably actually no, but they're still pretty barbarous in, in places and times. Uh, but we can acknowledge the, you know, the progress. I mean, again, I, I sometimes I hate to use that word because it's uh, uh, people have such allergies to it. But I don't know a better one. Uh, but here's David Brooks, and then I'll um, uh, leave us alone here. Hang on just a second. And he talks about how democracy has to be um, upheld in, in addition to being challenged and broken down, and that there's been, you know the movements towards democracy. Fair enough. I, I, of course, that's that's true. I would also, um, you know, just invite us to think radically about is democracy, as we see it and define it at least, the best form of government for all times. Um, it's certainly huge progress over autocracies, and of course, the, you know, the autocracies of history were way worse than the autocracies of today. But um, you know. Ken, Ken used to talk about, and I used to sort of roll my eyes and think never, you know, this is sort of crazy, but that maybe at one point governments are uh, uh, constituted around uh, everybody getting a score in terms of their level of development. And that uh, it is a sort of a benign um, rule of wise people, a circle of wise people. You know, I don't know. But I do know that it, it'll surprise us. And we may look back on this era of democracy as, you know, it was necessary and fantastic for its time. But, you know, I don't know. But at any rate, so I'm good with David Brooks saying that we need to rebuild it and that, all that good stuff. 
But here's the part where ay, 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 he writes, okay, so what happens when you don't tend to the seedbeds of democracy? Chaos? War? No, you return to normal. The 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries were normal. Well, they were normal for their time. But anyway, he says, big countries like China, Russia, and Turkey are ruled by fierce leaders with massive power. That's normal. Small aristocracies in many nations hog gigantic shares of their nation's wealth. True. Absolutely. This is also, you know, corruption is the economy in pre-modern times. You know, it just is. That's, uh, so that, are there strata where that still um, um, succeeds? Yes. Um, so he says, that's normal. Many people come to despise cultural outsiders like immigrants. Normal. Well, there's despising and there's despising. Global affairs resembles the law of the jungle with big countries threatening small ones. Is this the way, this is the way it's been for most of human history. In normal times, people crave leaders like Vladimir Putin. Again, what uh, a, a, a evolutionary view would do to solve the nuttiness of those statements is, I can't believe that's as far as it goes with mainstream um, commentary, but again, when materialism and maybe some psychology is all you have to work with, you know, that you, there, you, any intention built into the cosmos, any purpose, any meaning, any movement, any progress, any teleology, any of that doesn't, you can't factor that in because you don't, I guess you don't see it or you think of them as artifacts of history on the ash bin of the mythic stages. No, no. Um, uh, the, 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 the religion of emergence is, uh, I think it's just emerging. Uh, and I don't know what it'll look like, but it's, there's going to be one. Because the world is enchanted and people can't resist that. We have an enchantment gene. It, you know, it's taken a couple hundred year leave, but, um, you know, it'll be back. Anyway, I, I wish that um, <laughs> Harari and Brooks saw it that way. Uh, but, um, and, and honestly, I, I, I wrote down what I would uh, have suggested that Harari add to a, a new last paragraph that I'll read for you. Because, you know, I don't think it would be terribly off-brand for either of these guys or, you know, this whole realm of, of um, you know, modern um, commentariat to uh, offer something like this. So Harari writes his thing about the direction of history and all that good stuff. And, and again, makes all these good points. Again, I, I don't disagree with virtually anything he said. I just think there's this other thing that needs to be added and would really help. But at any rate, here's what I might suggest he writes. He would write, you know, folks, as I write this about the direction of human history, I just can't shake the feeling that it's almost as if there might be some sort of growth dynamic built into the cosmos, the universe, driving ever increasing complexity of human consciousness and culture. Does that seem so hard? But one of moral development and interpersonal and intercultural maturation. 
Maybe even spirit or divine otherness is involved. Of course, one could never prove it, and it may not even be a proper topic for scientific discussion, but it's worth noting. I think Harari could get away with that. I don't know if he believes it. Um, I did see a thing where he was, they said, does Harari believe in God? And what did he say? Um, okay, here's, here's his answer to the question, do you believe in God? He says, if I believe in God at all, it is my choice to believe. It wasn't my choice, honestly. But anyway, he says, if my inner self tells me to believe in God, then I believe. I believe because I feel God's presence. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And my heart tells me he is there. There you go. So, you know, let's take that to the bank. But then he goes on, he says, but so even while saying that I believe in God, the truth is that I have a much stronger belief in my own inner voice. Okay, it's better than nothing. And uh, again, I would say that choice, I don't remember, it didn't feel like a choice when I believed as a little Christian boy, or when I lost my religion as a teenager, that didn't feel like a choice either, felt like growth or that I gained it back again later in life. That felt like, uh, you know, a, that didn't feel like a choice. That felt like a religious experience. So anyway, um, if all you got is choice and materialism to work with, that's what you come up with. Okay, everybody. <laughs> well, thank you for indulging me. What fun. Uh, I do this now. I'm back from my little, I guess, month long vacation. And um, I am happy to be back in the saddle and joining you every week at 11 a.m. Mountain Time, which is 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Cultural Evolution Facebook group, the Post-Progressive Facebook group. And then again, these will be posted on the uh, Post-Progressive Post. Thank you to Josh Leonard and Steve McIntosh for inviting me to do this every week. And um, I often post excerpts on the Daily Evolver as well. And you can find all my stuff on the Daily Evolver. So, all right. Thanks again, folks. See you next week.